I don't think that was ever a good way to run a business, but you know, now it's it's certainly not even an option to run it that way anymore. And so, uh, you know, we're on a path to, and we think that with our growth trajectory and the stability of our customers, we can sustain ourselves. Now, that's not to say we won't raise again because there are strategic reasons that you want to raise again. Today, we have Adam Pardez and Chris Malero from Neuroflow uh, on the pod today. Uh, I met you guys, man, back in like 2017 when you were launching Neuroflow out of UPenn. Uh, I don't, you guys weren't even incorporated at the time. So it was just literally the two of you, very early days. Uh, you guys have since raised like, I don't even know, well into the eight figures in BC. You guys have, you know, I think you're over 100 people or something like that now. Uh, let's just dive into the story, like where it started, where it is today, and then all the bits in between. Yeah, thanks for having us, Brian. It's crazy that we've known each other for seven years now, like how the world has changed and our companies have evolved. It's nuts. Excited to be on. Likewise. Thanks for having us, Brian. Sure thing. So uh, let's go back to those like early days. I remember you guys were uh, just kind of trying to figure out what the company was going to be. And uh, I'm, I'm sure it's pivoted several times since then. But uh, let's kind of start those early days. Like, what was the thesis behind Neuroflow? Uh, you know, why then? Why did you guys come up with the business idea? What was the opportunity? And then, you know, where, where has it evolved since then? Um, I'll give my perspective and then uh, happy to have Adam join in. I think the good thing about Adam and I is we bring a lot uh, we bring different perspectives and uh, different backgrounds and so forth to the conversation, which for the most part, I don't like to disagree, uh, is uh, productive. Um, but I mean, look, I had a, a personal connection with mental health. I, before, um, before going to Penn for graduate school, I was in the Army for a number of years. I went to West Point for undergrad and, um, and had a number of soldiers that I served with and that were in my platoon. Um, struggle with, you know, depression, PTSD, sleep issues, myself included with sleep, certainly, uh, after a 12-month deployment. Um, tragically, our, our unit, we lost a soldier to depression when he took his own life. And, you know, that stuck with me for, for a while. Um, and it wasn't until after I got out of the military and I went to Wharton for business school when I started to realize that um, I was in this healthcare class um, it was called the business of healthcare and realized that these challenges with mental health are not limited to just the military or veterans, but it really impacts everybody. Um, and there's a giant gap in care from people that are being treated for physical conditions, um, but are not being either they're not identified to have behavioral health conditions or, or not treated appropriately for them. And they, they end up struggling and a lot of times struggling silently. And it actually, it impacts the physical health side of things. And so you're right, we have pivoted a lot, we could get into that. But one of the interesting things I think for us and was a foundational thing in the success of the company so far is that we've never been a company in search of a problem. Uh, we've The anchoring point for us all always, no matter how difficult the days get or you know things go wrong, or growth is slower than we wanted, we could always anchor back to, we know people are struggling out there. We know there's tens of millions of people that have depression and anxiety. And we know that it's not a problem that's solved today. So we may not be solving it in the right way, but we know that there's a problem there that needs to be solved. And it, you know, it, that was at least for me, the constant fuel to continue, um, you know, to continue chipping away and get to where we are today. Awesome. Did you have anything to add to that, Adam? Yeah, I'll just add in, you know, you have to go back in time a little bit and remember, you know, 2016, 2017, the conversation around mental health was pretty different than it is today. Uh, and the, you know, money invested in different companies and different solutions, the explosion of telehealth, you know, largely uh, catalyzed by COVID. It was a very different world then. So I, I came up through a biomedical engineering background, so I did my undergrad in. And then um, was doing my uh, doctoral degree at UPenn, and 
you look at all these incredible innovations in, in medicine and the combination of technology and healthcare. And then we looked at mental health back then, and it, it lagged so far behind from a, an innovation standpoint, every other aspect of medicine and discipline of medicine. And in, in large part, it's understandable because it's a very complex, uh, I wouldn't say soft science, it's, it's certainly hard science, but it's it's much more nuanced than you know looking at an x-ray seeing a, a broken bone. Right. Um, so the that that lag in technology, we felt like there has to be something there. We're not trying to create, you know, uh, robot therapists and turn everything to, to AI. But there's certainly aspects of technology that can be beneficial. And, you know, really, I think a lot of what we've discovered and this has evolved over time is that clinicians were doing a lot of things that clinicians don't need to be doing. Uh, that's, you know, well below uh, the top of their licensure and is important work in terms of, you know, collecting different assessments and doing, you know, intake. But a lot of that could also be uh, automated through technology so that they get that easier, faster, can view it over time. It's better experience for, you know, the patient or the member or the user. Uh, so we felt like, hey, there has to be this not only high tech approach, but combination of high tech and high touch uh, that will really move the the industry forward. So you fast forward now to you know 2024. There's a lot of companies in the space doing interesting things, attacking the problem from different ways. Like Chris said, never had to worry about being a, a company in search of a problem. Uh, but the behavioral health landscape and the healthcare landscape more broadly there's not a single silver bullet, right? If there was an easy answer, we collectively, we would have already addressed it. There's a lot of different problems that have to be solved and we're doing our part, um, you know, to attack it from a, a data and a technology standpoint. What do you think uh, since 2017, when we first met uh, in those seven years, what do you think has evolved in this space? I mean, I've seen a lot of startups, like you mentioned, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like Talkspace or Calm and you know, all these different kinds of, you know, app-based tech company startups that have come out. Uh, but just in the industry in general, like, has there been any kind of shifts in how to treat mental health conditions or even diagnose mental health conditions? And, you know, have you seen progress taking place in, in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think the, so just using the two examples you brought up in Talkspace and Com as the anchor for that point, you know, there's, I think, two, um, two overarching themes that you want to like uh, frame frame the discussion. So there's one, how you're going to market. So B2B, other, you know, business to business or direct to consumer. And then on the severity scale, like general wellness or, you know, meditation type stuff all the way up to clinical validated, um, you know, FDA approved um, different tools and stuff like that. You know, Calm is in one end of that spectrum. They're direct consumer and their wellness tool. Right? They're not a therapy. They're not replacing therapy. They're not a therapeutic. You're not going to prescribe Calm. Like anybody that wants to relax and learn meditation skills can use Calm. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, you have Talkspace, which is delivering therapy, uh, teletherapy, and telepsychiatry. Uh, with licensed providers. Um, in some cases, they, um, they'll they prescribe medication or they'll do legitimate evidence-based therapy. They, Talkspace is interesting because they started out as direct-to-consumer uh, and they've since pivoted going upstream, selling to payers and employers. Um, but that's really the spectrum that you have. And then you have the evolution of um, more evidence-based therapies coming you know, the famous one last year was paratherapeutics was an FDA-approved digital therapeutic, so like an FDA-approved version of Calm for um, substance use disorder. Uh, and unfortunately, they went bankrupt last year. They they just were not able to find a business model to sustain themselves. But that gives you kind of a flavor of that spectrum of everything from direct-to-consumer to business-to-business, to business. Um, and then on the clinical level of wellness to like medical grade, where Neuroflow fits in. Uh, from day one, we've always been business to business. We've never made our tools available to a consumer unless they were invited via um, a health insurance company that's a customer of ours or a health system provider group that's a customer of ours. 
we don't make money off of the consumer, right? The consumer accesses it, doesn't get, doesn't get charged anything, doesn't get, uh, you know, we don't monetize ads or the data and so forth. We sell our subscriptions to the system that then invites the, their population. Um, and we've also been on the clinical grade side of things. So um, we're not licensed to provide care ourselves. So we're not the care delivery organization, rather the tools for the care delivery organizations to more efficiently deliver care and, in, you know, evidence-based measured uh, sort of way. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, and that, that brings up a good, uh, a good, good conversation there. So you guys originally started out selling to therapists. I think you were selling your, your product as a tool for, for therapists to measure efficacy of their, uh, you know, their treatment. Uh, and then you've since moved more to selling to health care systems and I, I guess insurance companies or health plans. Uh, can you talk about that evolution? Like where, where you started, uh, where, where you, where you're at now and then why you've made that pivot? Uh, along the way, uh, you, you talk about the first uh, customers. Sure. So, I'll I'll frame it first in terms of your your last question around like how has the industry involved evolved in general? Because I think it, it fits into that, which is that whether you're talking about the the comms or pairs or the digital tools side of things, or you're talking about the uh, the talk spaces, uh, Ginger now Headspace Health, uh, Liras of the world that are delivering care really the explosion of companies in the landscape were to address initially the single biggest problem around behavioral health, which was access of people couldn't find someone in network or they couldn't find someone locally, especially for psychiatry, but for, for therapy to a great extent too. So a lot of what technology helped to do was democratize access to behavioral health support, again, whether that's clinical care or digital tools. Yeah, I think what has been interesting to see evolve, and I think we were you know, ahead of the curve here, is that access alone is not enough. So it's not that access is important. Those companies are all doing really important work and need to continue to do that. Uh, but once you have access, then you have to focus on quality. Are they delivering evidence-based care? So that's where like the, the measurement-based care side of things comes in. Um, and we can talk about that from a neuroflow perspective. Uh, but now we're measuring. That's great. How about identifying people in the first place? Because there's also lots of challenges around people not self-identifying or not being identified uh, within a greater you know, healthcare system, and then tying that into their overall healthcare. So not just treating behavioral health as, okay, great. We've identified them. We found them a provider. We know they're delivering quality care, but we're going to have that go treated in a silo. Like if someone has diabetes or obesity or COPD or any of these things, you're not just looking at that in, you know, in a vacuum, you're thinking, okay, well, how does that relate to your lifestyle? How does it relate to social determinants like access to healthy food, uh, you know, ability to pay for healthcare? Uh, so you have to think about behavioral health in that larger context to really drive overall well-being, which matters, you know, for the end consumer as well as for the folks, you know, picking up the tab, whether that's a, a health system at risk or the, the payer from a total cost of care standpoint, because it's been very well uh, demonstrated that the the cost to manage uh, a person that has diabetes versus someone who has diabetes in a co-occurring behavioral health condition, be it anxiety, depression, it, it, it's much higher in that that second case, you know, depending on the condition, two to four uh, times higher typically uh, per annum. So, that's, I think, the the evolution or kind of sophistication around solving this problem beyond just saying, hey, there's not enough care providers out there. What can we do to create more access? Um, so I'll, I'll actually let Chris follow up on that in terms of like how Neuroflows followed that curve and in a lot of ways, I think, helped really spearhead that that evolution. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the to start, you know, I like to use a physical health um comparison here. If I was treating someone's diabetes, I'm going to measure their A1C level over time to see if that's improving. If I'm treating someone's hypertension, I'm going to measure their blood pressure levels over time. If someone has cancer and they're going through a cancer treatment, I'm going to measure the progression of their tumor and if it's improving or not improving over time. That um, mathematical objective viewpoint in terms of is the treatment plan working or not working so that we can make adjustments or not has been non-existent in the mental health world 
for a while. It's always been like, are you feeling better or not? And that's been left up to the judgment of the therapist or the psychiatrist. And that's, you know, no fault of anybody's really. That's just the way it was, the science, right? And then there was this evolution of um, using assessments, which are not perfect, but they're better than nothing to measure someone's level of mental health issues. Uh, and this is called measurement-based care. So again, it's nothing groundbreaking. It's the same way that I would measure my A1C level with diabetes. I'm just measuring my uh, level of depression severity in the course of treatment for depression. Um, that is measurement-based care has not been standardized across the board. It's not done at regular frequencies or regular times and, and that sort of thing. And so our first version of the product was to help standardize measurement-based care with therapists and psychiatrists. This is the business lesson here is that they're, you know, better for better or worse. I'm not suggesting that this is the right thing. It's just a reality. There was not an economic incentive to do that. Uh, therapists were, you're not going to improve their business, not going to generate more revenue, nor are you going to save them time to help their bottom line. So it didn't help the top line, didn't help the bottom line. And what you found was there was a reluctance to pay for stuff like this. Like a therapist would say, why am I going to do this? Like there's, I have a line outside the door of people. So the demand, we have no shortage of demand, and there's no incentive to just add this additional work to the table. Um, and that was a, I think, a hard lesson for us because we wanted to help these therapists, you know, basically usher them into the 21st century using technology and data the same way every other medical professional is using, but the market just wasn't ready for that. That was one problem. The other problem was there are, in this country, roughly two-thirds of people that have a behavioral health diagnosis never get it treated. So think about that. If you extrapolate that out, that's 50 or 60 million people have depression or anxiety. Two-thirds of that are 30 to 40 million people on an annual basis never get it treated. Like, if, because if they I don't know that, or because they just they, they uh, don't want to do, deal with it? I think there's a combination of reasons. I mean, I think it's a uh, they might not know, be aware like, oh, crap, like seasonal depressions are a real thing. I, I didn't realize that I had like when it gets cold out and the days are shorter and everything. I'm, it's like hard to have more energy than when it's in the summer. I, I mean, you know, so but there's a lack of awareness. I think in some cases, it depends on the community you're talking about, too. Like in the military community, there's a lot of stigma associated with it. Um, it can be an access problem. Like if in rural America, when some counties don't have any psychiatrists, so you have to like drive an hour to just get to the nearest psychiatrist. Um, uh, so it's an issue of wait times and so forth. Uh, you know, we dealt we could get into more of this later, but there's sometimes there's a 30 day wait time to get into therapy. Uh, that are accepted by insurance. And so I think it's a lot of those compilation of problems. The challenge is, what we know is, but so again, just framing that, 40 million people don't get it treated. If I said that same statistic for cancer, we'd be saying this is a national emergency. Um, but it's just kind of accepted as standard with mental health. The positive thing is we know that most of those people are being treated somewhere in the healthcare system, primary care, OBGYN, chronic care, uh, pain patients, and so forth. And so what the pivot that we made was going upstream to helping those medical care that are physical health providers better identify mental health conditions, uh, treat it when appropriate within their setting, and for the higher risk cases, getting them connected to the right levels of care with no wait times because you're, you know, you're removing that bottleneck rather than sending everyone to a psychiatrist. You only send the people that need to go to the psychiatrist. And when we did that, the economic incentives were aligned too, because the primary care providers were paid more. The um, health insurance companies were happy because not everybody was going to psychiatrists, which is, again, if you have mild um, seasonal depression, because it's just it's windy and cold in Philadelphia and you want it to be summer, uh, you don't need to go see a psychiatrist for medication. Uh, but like that's the standard today. And so using tech, you could better, uh, I like to say it's like an air traffic controller of uh, saying, okay, these are the population, these are the needs in the population, um, and these are the people that need to go to this higher level of care. These are the people that could benefit from a lower level of care and so forth and be proactive in that manner. And that's really when you do that, you, you see improved outcomes across the board. 
And what's really interesting um, is not only do you see the, and Adam was alluding to this too, in terms of the connection of mental and physical health, you not only see improved outcomes in terms of the mental health outcomes, you see the physical health outcomes improve too. And when you help someone's depression, you also see the A1C levels improve in it, for their diabetes metrics. And it just, you know, it's um, it adds credibility to the statement that mental health is health. You know, it's one body and one affects the other. We're just adding data and technology to that equation now. That's cool. Uh, I, I I want you guys to describe your product. I, I I think you guys have a IoT hardware component along with a uh, software component. Uh, and then who who uses the product? Is it like the PCPs, the primary care physicians? Uh, just kind of go go into the details of your product and how it works. Right. You we we haven't talked in a while. Seven years ago, there certainly was a hardware component. Uh, but um, so. What we started to do again, which was this idea of measuring outcomes in mental health settings, was using wearable devices that measured heart rate and EEG brain waves to measure someone's anxiety and depression levels. Um, and it turned out that you could do that. Like your body, when you're depressed or anxious, your body changes in measurable ways. Your heart rate changes, your brain waves, specifically your alpha waves in your frontal prefrontal cortex change in measurable and predictable ways that you could say, oh, wow, Brian's in a heightened state of a fight or flight right now, and like what the severity of that is. Um, we actually published research studies that were funded by the National Science Foundation on this subject. Um, again, going to the, the problem that we were solving and the economics, it was a cool technology, uh, it, but it didn't help the therapists provide better care or make more money or save more money. And there was an, uh, there was a big cost associated with the hardware components. Uh, not to say also some people felt weird wearing a headset while in therapy sessions, which makes sense. So when we made a big pivot, probably within the first year of the company, where we wanted to have the hardware be an optional add-on where you, you could use that, but it wasn't dependent on that. And so um, where we are today is a very similar value proposition, but without the dependency on uh, hardware inputs. So what Neuroflow does is we partner with health systems and health insurance plans to look at their population to uh, run artificial intelligence on their data. So what we do, we collect a bunch of different types of data, uh, claims data, electronic health record data, and patient input data. So the, the assessments and, um, you know, if you write your doctor a note, uh, we'll run NLP on that note. All of those different data sources get crunched in our analytics engine to create a risk stratification profile of the population. So we could say, you know, if you have 100,000 people, these 5,000 people are at significant risk of potential suicide, these 5,000 people have significant depression, and then these other people, you know, are doing okay and keep an eye on them. We use that data then to help coordinate care. So we have integration points, uh, you know, APIs and so forth that go into the clinical workflows. So a primary care provider or a, um, a care manager, an OBGYN provider can be better informed that, you know, if a PCP is treating Brian for hypertension, lower back pain, and diabetes, they should also know that mental health component. So we send that data to the providers, and we have then a consumer-facing uh, engagement tool that follows them throughout treatment. And that piece is all white-labeled to be look and feel like our clients. So if our, you know, we're working with Jefferson Health, for example, right here in Philly, um, we'll help their primary care providers identify mental health issues, risk stratify their population, send the right people to behavioral health, and then follow up with those people through engagement software that sends the data back to the provider. And so we have that, that feedback loop. Um, today, we do that with 16 million people um, across the country in all 50 states. We um, Last year, we identified 33,000 people of high risk of suicide that we were able to intervene with. Uh, and I don't think it's melodramatic to say, like, we've saved some lives. We, you know, those are 33,000 people that were struggling 
uh, many of which were urgent to the point where they had a plan and they, they felt hopeless, our technology alerted the health system, our customer, so that they were able to reach out in a timely way uh, and get that person to the right level of care. And so that, that's what the technology is doing today. Um, from a hardware component, the only remnants of that today are we have APIs that integrate with wearables like the Apple Watch and so forth. So if you're exercising and so forth, that's a data point that goes into the risk stratification uh, triage engine. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so you, you've got health systems using the platform. You're risk stratifying the the patient population, and uh, what do you do? Like, what do they do with that data? Do they, uh, you know, they they then like make new care plan adjustments, or you know, recommend certain types of therapies, or you know, how do they, uh, you know, what what do they do with the data, and then how are, are you able to? I'm sure it's difficult, but are you able to actually measure? sort of like the impact of your product in these health populations? Yeah, I'll speak to what they do with the data and then if you want to speak to the, the impact. Um, so this is where it gets both really cool and really complex, uh, which is that every every patient uh, is different. Every healthcare system is, is different. Every payer is different in the communities they serve. Uh, and then even within those payers, if you think of a Medicare uh, member versus a Medicaid member versus a commercial member, like there's there's no one size fits all approach. So we've intentionally built in that configurability and flexibility into the platform. So there can be this combination of kind of smart automation of some of that that traffic or air traffic control that Chris was talking about of like, all right, can we send folks down the right path uh, without needing a human to review every single record? But can we also give those people the ability to further tailor that and say, well, you know, based off what I know about this individual, I actually would want to adjust that a little bit. So we we offer both. And what I think is important to, to call out here is, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here with stratification and navigation is about getting the right people to the right care at the right time. Uh, and that's not, you know, unique to Neuroflow. I think that's, that's healthcare at its best uh, because of the cost of healthcare and scarcity of resources. You really do have to do that, that matching well. I think one of the really important things that we layer on top of that is that there's the the clinical kind of right step, but there's also what I would consider like the business logic. Uh, so if we work with a health plan that has employers as customers, those employers might have their own services that they're offering. That could be an EAP, uh, that could be a you know teletherapy offering, could also outside of the behavioral health side of things could be uh, you know musculoskeletal offering an MSK. Uh, tool. So what we can do is layer not only the clinical logic, but that business logic, because a lot of times what's happened, especially going to we keep going back to this anchoring of like explosion in the digital health space, there's more tools than ever. Um, and I would say three years ago, people were all really excited about that. Now people are like, oh, but there's a lot and there's a lot of confusion and how do I centralize it? And that's why you hear about like digital front doors and that kind of thing, because it's Again, solving the access problem, we created kind of this this new problem, which is where do people go? So a lot of times what we're helping to do in terms of acting on that data is not uh, this you know incredibly novel, uh, where do we send them? But it's saying, hey, you actually already have access to you know six free sessions through an EAP or, oh, you have a comorbid MSK issue and you're company offers benefits like a hinge health how do we make sure that you you get there so without needing to raise your hand if you don't necessarily know so layering in that that business logic allows us to get people that right care also at the right cost that's within network that makes the you know in, in the case i explained the employer happy because that's now utilizing a benefit that they're paying for makes the health plan happy because they're you know getting someone into the the treatment that they need obviously good for the individual um, getting the care they need in a timely manner uh, so that that combination of clinical and business logic is is really what drives that and is a big part of what we do from not just a technology standpoint but our you know very hands-on implementation and goal setting with clients to understand you know the the current workflows and the current landscape of solutions so that we're not introducing 
a, you know, another set of kind of endpoints that people have to be thinking about, but we can help pull a lot of it together and say, all right, well, what are you offering today? What can we layer on top of that? Uh, and do we have the right places to send folks and bring some of our best practices to bear as well? Uh, because sometimes they're not exactly sure the best way to set up those programs. We've done that you know, across the country and can bring a lot of expertise there. Um, so it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, uh, but really more more nuanced by by client. Yeah, and I think when it comes to measuring the outcomes, you really have to take a stock in uh, what it is that you can impact and uh, what it is that you're doing. So using the two examples that we used earlier, Com and Talkspace, they're really point solutions or point services that are delivering care, whether it's Com that's delivering wellness care or uh, Talkspace that's doing the therapy and psychiatry. Those are care delivery mechanisms, uh, you know, again, on different severity spectrums that should see those outcomes. You use Calm, you're going to sleep better. You talk to Talkspace, you should see an improvement in your depression or anxiety. Uh, we are not delivering the care. We're a, really a workflow tool and an intelligence platform to better enable our customers who are the care delivery organizations to improve the way that they're delivering the care. So, I, I mean, look, this is a, we're both business leaders. Um, this is a business podcast, so to frame it in terms of a business example, um, we use marketing automation intelligence software, right? Our marketing team uses that to track impressions and different, uh, you know, campaigns that they're running, uh, you know, something like a HubSpot. That software is not going to claim that they're going to make our marketing more successful. That's dependent on the content we're putting out. That's dependent on the people we're targeting. That's dependent on the strategy we have. That's dependent on the budget we have. What that software could claim is they're gonna make our team more informed using data. They're gonna make us more efficient and effective and, and so forth, which by the way, should make our marketing campaigns more successful. But a lot of it is dependent on our marketing team and strategy. And so it's the same thing with our partners like health systems, we do expect to see improved outcomes. We do expect to see lower um, unnecessary use of different resources like the emergency department and so forth. But that's not because of Neuroflow, that's because of what Neuroflow is helping enable within our client's ecosystem. So there's, yeah, it might sound like a nuanced difference, but I think it's an important one because it's when we are working with our clients, uh, helping them be more successful and enabling and, you know, aligning on what we're measuring is key to key to our success and their success. Yeah. I'm thinking about it almost like, uh, like in software, you've got tools like Splunk or Datadog where uh, they just like mine through this massive treasure trove of data that you have generated from all your servers and systems and make sense of it in meaningful ways. And uh, that's kind of what you guys are doing for, for health systems. I think a lot of these health systems aren't really that, uh, savvy when it comes to leveraging their data sets and and making making sense of it at scale. I mean, they put the data in and they pull it out on a case by case basis when a patient comes in and, you know, but they don't have uh, a lot of them don't have the capability to do mass studies on the data in a way that they can really direct care at, at uh, you know, as you guys put it, like this stratification level. Uh, yeah. so it, yeah, it's really, really interesting, uh, you know, uh, product you guys have built here. Uh, is there anything I, I, I want to pivot gears more to like the growth of the company, but is there anything else you guys want to close out on the product or any other points you want to make about the product and, and how you're helping individual patients and, and healthcare systems? I mean, actually just hearing you explain, explain it back to me, what, what you heard, uh, was one very well put, but it made me think like in a very simple way, what Neuroflow is good at is we're good at collecting data, digesting that data and making that actionable for the health systems in an easy to use way for their workflows. But in the end, they're on the front lines delivering the care. Um, we're a partner to help them do that in a high tech, high touch sort of way um, and make, you know, make them more efficient. So the, um, you know, trying to put a nice bow on it I think, you know, it wasn't always that way. So, I mean, maybe that's a good lead into the growth story about how we've evolved, but um, that's what we've been doing today across the country with payers and systems, which is, uh, you know, has been really exciting. 
I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. Well, uh, you guys have raised quite a few rounds, I think. Uh, I'm curious, what years did you guys end up raising? And, uh, you know, how how difficult was it to raise? I mean, was it did investors just immediately get this business or did you have to kind of teach them uh, a lot about what you're doing and convince them? Or uh, what what was that process like for you guys raising the, the amount that you did? Easier to name the years that we didn't raise, I think, at yeah. this point. That's true. <laughs> uh, you can look this up on Crunchbase, too. In 2017, we raised a million and a quarter. 2018, we raised two and a quarter. 2019, we raised seven and a half. 2020, we raised 20. 2021, we raised 35. 2022, we didn't raise. And... 2023, we, wait. I think 35 was 2022. Yeah, I'm sorry. We didn't raise in 2021. 2022 was 35, and then we didn't raise in 2023. So we didn't raise in 21 and 23. Uh, uh, every other year since 2017, we have raised, combined to just under $60 million raised. Um, and to answer your question about the difficulty of it, the first round, um, the first million and a quarter dollars was by far the most difficult thing I've ever, I think, professionally had to do. And that, again, mind you, I served in a combat deployment in the army, but it was the, I mean, it just, it was so new to me. I mean, you know, Adam and I were first time entrepreneurs. We had no background in this. We had no healthcare background either. I mean, we're like, really, if you think about it, we had no business doing what we did. Um, and we didn't, that's usually the case, though, I think, with uh, a lot of yeah. entrepreneurs. <laughs> we, I mean, we just didn't. I mean, and also going back to we, I think the one thing that we always hit on was the problem. Everybody knew that there was a problem. Uh, it was just like how we are fixing the problem. And so I'll give a shout out to our first investor, uh, the late Wayne Tamarelli. He passed away uh, two months ago, tragically, and you know we're going to miss him dearly. But he always said that he invested in us as the entrepreneurs and thought we would figure it out and that the problem was there and we were mission driven and he loved that. And, you know, and we like, are in debt for him forever for doing that. Um, but the, 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 the uh, reciprocal was much more common. You know, 141 investors told us no our first round. I remember one investor in particular said, Chris, we love the market. We think BH is a big opportunity. We think you're solving it in the right way. We just don't think that you're the right CEO. Wow. I mean, that was that was really hard to hear, but it was, you know, Adam has always been good in terms of anchoring us, going back and saying, okay, like, what can we take from that to learn, to get better, and to use it moving forward? Uh, and so with each round, um, I think it, in a way, it's gotten easier. In a way, it's gotten harder. Um, the more the more that we've raised and the larger that we've gotten, the more sophisticated our investors have gotten and the more that they understand the value proposition and so forth. But the goalposts just move in terms of goals and where our revenue targets need to be and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, all in all, though, I think that first round when we didn't have really a working product, it was just a hope and a dream and, a, and an idea uh, was was definitely the hardest round for us. I don't know, Adam, if you agree or disagree. Uh, I definitely agree that was the hardest round. Um, but I agree with the like in some ways easier, some ways harder. Partially just macroeconomic environment has changed. We think about 2017 to 2020 to now. Um, but I'd say using one of Wayne's uh uh phrases, it's like sizzle versus steak. Uh early on, it's all sizzle, right? You're like you're talking about the market, you're talking about the problem. Uh people know that you're not gonna have a ton of proof points yet, you're not gonna have tons of customers. Uh, fantastic product like you're early on so you're really selling the the sizzle the later stage you get the less people buy into the sizzle and the more proof is in the pudding and they're buying into the steak so now what does your traction look like what does your growth rate look like 
uh, you know, the gross margin profile, all of that. So it's, it just, it changes the discussion. Uh, like Chris said, in some ways it's easier, in some ways it's harder. Uh, I think the most important is being self-aware of that and, you know, not going to a series B, series C uh, stage investor and telling them about, you know, how incredible the the TAM is. Like, yes, that's a, that's a piece of it, but like, what, what have you done with the money you've already raised and the team you've built, you now have had, you know, three, four five plus years. You can't just always be selling sizzle. Uh, you gotta, you gotta show that there's some, uh, some tooth to it. What do you guys think about, uh, actually, let me, Ask another question first. So, 2022. What what part of the year did you raise in 2022? Uh, we closed it in summertime. Yeah, the end of the end of summer, so August. That was like right when the markets were starting to change. Uh, what 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 was it like in 2022 trying to trying to raise then? It was the worst thing ever. I mean, I, well, I guess I can't say that because I said the first round was the worst. It was the second worst thing ever. Uh, it took longer. It dragged out, I yeah. think, more than previous rounds. We had, um, yeah, it just, all it did was the diligence was harder to get through. Like they dug in with a finer tooth comb in terms, the valuation still was great for us. I mean, we still had a very strong business. We had a strong customer base. I think they saw the value uh, in what we had built and where we were going. So it didn't change the story or the value proposition, it just changed the amount of uh, kind of the the, the the level of magnification they looked at the business storing during the diligence period to make sure that the T's were crossed, I's were dotted sort of thing. But, you know, we eventually got there. Well, that's a positive too on the flip side in terms of raising in that market uh, and doing so on, you know, the attractive terms and fair terms, I think we we lean into uh like i think personally as well as you know from a, a market standpoint of to do that in that environment and to have that level of diligence done and to still come out on the other side tells you like you you have something real which obviously we we knew and believed uh, but i think it's good validation to the market and we always you know said there's there's always money out there to be raised by companies that are doing well right people are always putting that money to work the bar might be higher uh, so it might be less companies but people growing good businesses doing good work right there, there's always a market for that yeah i also think the if you look at like the valuation that we got in 22 uh which is in public so i can't say it but the um it was a it was a very it was a healthy valuation it was up around for us but it wasn't to the extent of like the 2021 valuations were i mean if you think back to 2021 it was a crazy crazy time uh it was really more of a year to exit than to raise money uh and so it you know i i think it's kind of a blessing that we didn't raise in 21 with those crazy valuations because the now what companies now are having to do is they're going to having to grow into that valuation uh before they need to raise again and in a lot of cases they're not and they're having to take significant down rounds or you know and get crunched down so the you know 20 it just it was it wasn't as frothy as 21 it took a lot longer than it would have taken if it was 21 but it was still a you know an ultimately good outcome for us and what's been interesting for us in a positive way is we've had a lot of um a lot of, a lot of the investors that we've attracted since i'd say like post series a have been strategic in nature so sophisticated investors that have significant healthcare background and ex expertise um that are more than just sources of capital for us. They're really strategic in helping us think through messaging, helping with business development, um, and that sort of thing. And so, from a capital standpoint, they're really more partners than just you know investors, which is a positive. That's great. And do you guys think you'll raise again in this sort of like this post zerp uh, you know, post zero interest rate environment, or are you guys, uh, you know? moving the business to be uh you know self-sustaining on cash flow at this point uh, certainly the, the our model right now is the latter i mean we are in a position where we're going to use our scale now to our benefit where we can be more efficient and it's not you know the days of growing at all costs spend whatever money you can to add to the top line uh, you know it's just not realistic i don't think that was ever a good way to run a business but you know now it's it's certainly not even an option to run it that way anymore. And so 
uh, you know, we're on a path to, and we think that with our growth trajectory and the stability of our customers, we can sustain ourselves. Now, that's not to say we won't raise again because there are strategic reasons that you want to raise again. So we uh, went last year, we acquired our first company and grew inorganically as well as organically. Um, you know, we think that there will be additional opportunities to continue to grow organically and inorganically and acquire companies that are accretive in nature. Um, so it's possible that we raise to to support our acquisition strategies, but um, you know, it's a different dynamic from raising to stay in business uh, and raising for strategic reasons. Yeah, I'll I'll build on that too, and especially for the entrepreneurs out there in terms of like that wasn't a big pivot for us. Um, and I think we've always had an, an eye towards like pragmatic fundraising uh, and not growth at all costs. Uh, obviously, you want to invest a lot in growth early on, but you know, even over all of those years of of raising, like we still in some have raised less than some companies do for a like series A round, especially over the years that we were raising. So we weren't raising these, you know, hundred million mega rounds, like throwing up a unicorn valuation just to be like, yep, we did it. Um, and then we've always taken that approach of, I'd say discipline is really the key word because it, it like enforced discipline, right? If you have hundreds of millions of dollars to spend and lots of runway to do it with, you're not always going to make actually the best decisions for the business. Um, I think what we've done is had we've raised the right amount with the right kind of benchmarks, or, you know, the right valuations, and shown that we are building a a long term sustainable business, not just trying to build for a you know a quick exit or you know the highest possible um, liquidation in the shortest possible time. We're trying to to build this to do good in the world and build a strong business for you know our our investors and our our team. Um, so I think that's that's key to how we've we've grown and why I think we've been able to weather some of the last few years from a, a macroeconomic standpoint of like that in, in some ways was business as usual for us. Cool. What, one more question I'm raising, then we can move on. Uh, I want to hear some stories, uh, you know, during, during your, uh, you know, founding and, and growth of the company, but uh, with your, with your, your rounds, did you, was it mostly East coast money or West coast money you guys were raising? Um, well, during the first round, the 141 people, I was talking to anybody that would want to like just take our phone call sort of thing. So that was East Coast, West Coast, South, North, you know, wherever. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I don't, you know, everyone has their own background. But when I was at business school, the advice was given, well, your first round should just be friends and family. And I looked at Adam and I go, I don't know what type of friends and family you have, but I don't have, <laughs> I don't have a background where my friends and family are going to be able to write me the checks that we're we're looking for, you know. Uh, so that was out of the question, I guess. You know, our early investors have become our friends now, so that, that counts. But um, you know, it was a, a little bit of all over the place um, for the first rounds. Our Series A round was led by a SF firm called Builders VC. Um, and then our um, and then our Series B round was led by uh, a Boston-based firm, HLM Ventures. So the I'd say most have been East Coast and strategic money in like the healthcare space, not the not the Silicon Valley uh, throw money at the problem to grow to a unicorn sort of thing. Um, it, you know, not to say that's not a you know, that strategy works for some companies. It just wasn't the one that panned out for us. So, uh, you know, that it's, it's worked out in the end. Cool. All right. So, uh, what kind of stuff, uh, like what kind of interesting stories Adam was sharing a few, I guess, like, you know, you guys did a South by Southwest talk at, at one point early in the company. And I think you were like pushing, pushing code to the demo, like, you know, right up until the minutes before you guys went on stage and, you know, ended up, you know, the demo worked, but, uh, you know, that, that was, I don't know, Adam, if you, if you have some more to add to that, but you know, what kind of crazy stories do you guys have from getting this thing off the ground? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with that one. Cause it is one of my favorites. I think probably a collective favorite and was, uh, from a, let's say a business standpoint, maybe not the most 
pivotal because it's not like we had tons of customers and prospects in the audience, but I think from a, a culture standpoint, a really actually important moment. Uh, so Chris and I were down at South by Southwest. We had a really small team at that point, um, all like unpaid uh, college intern with us. I mean, we had no we had not raised anything. It was this was uh, something we were passionate about, and found other folks that were passionate about, and were working on in kind of nights and early mornings and weekends. Uh, and we had worked on this prototype. It was like a week or two before South by. We knew we were going to be down there doing this pitch competition. And Chris has the brilliant idea, a la you know Twitter at South by Southwest. Like, why don't we just do a live demo? How cool would it be if we streamed? my stress levels in real time because we were still doing the wearables at that point. And we we're like, you you realize that like we don't have something that really totally works yet. And we're like, yeah, but we got like two weeks. I bet we could figure it out. Yeah. Um so we, you know, we we worked with the team. We we got there. Uh Saturday morning, the pitch was I think like three or four PM uh on Saturday. Saturday morning we're all nighter. Yeah, we're on the phone with the team. Uh, it like, seems like three people. Yeah. In, addition to <laughs> uh, in Texas, and we're like, all right, well, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. We got a few more hours. Do we feel like we can we can pull it off? We kind of need a, a go or no go. And um, Chris and I look at each other, and we're thinking about it, and we're like, what do we have to lose? Like, let's let's give it a shot. We'll do our best, and. You know, we'll we'll see what happens, and it went. I, I also think we left it to the one of the, the like the head engineer at the time too. Well, I think we yeah, maybe we voted, and yeah, everyone's like, like Matt, you tell. He was an intern, <laughs> part time, and we're like, what do you think? You give us, and he's like, I say go for it. And we're like, Adam, what do you think? He goes, let's go for it. Yeah. So, that, I mean, and that was the wearables time. So I went on stage wearing the heart rate monitor. Actually, I think. If if the viewers watch this on YouTube and then look at the demo, they might think I don't wear any other clothes because I think I was wearing the same thing, like the same shirt and like the button down. That was Your open. shirt still fits. Yeah. So I don't think mine does. That's a good sign. <laughs> um, but the so I was wearing the heart rate monitor. I was wearing this shirt. Uh, I was wearing the headset monitor. And again, we we never developed um, and manufactured the wearables ourselves. We used third party wearables. We just connected into their APIs. But I was wearing the headset, was wearing the heart rate monitor, uh, and then on stage in front of about a thousand people in Austin, I said, you know, you know, uh, my name is Chris Malaro. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Neuroflow. Uh, right now, you could go to neuroflowlive.com and see my stress stream in real time. And sure enough, like you were able to see it there, it spiked because obviously I was nervous. Uh, and then it mellowed out as I got into more of a groove on this during the pitch, and uh, we ended up winning that, which was. You know, it's just one of those stories that's, you know, I, we don't even, I don't think any of that code still exists in the platform today, but that mentality and the idea of, you know what, we're not going to let perfect be the enemy of good. We're going to move forward. We have a value at the company that uh, says uh, move fast and decisively with courage. So the idea is like, look, we're not going to figure everything out at this point, but we, again, we know that there's an opportunity and we know that there's a problem to be solved. And I, uh, you know, time isn't on our side. And so like that core value, I think, came through that day in Austin with the demo. Uh, and it comes through every day while we're here. It's like, let's let's reach out to the health system and say we can help them today. We're not going to be able to help with everything. Uh, but like something is better than nothing at this point. Like we can we can start to bridge that gap, um, at, you know, between mental and physical health. And that's going to take uh, courage to be able to get systems and payers to do stuff that's new to them. Uh, and again, I think we've been successful at that. And that's early on story uh, in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest in 2017 was, uh, you know, in a manifestation of that it was an exciting time. Yeah, actually, yeah. the the value over your shoulder is the one that that always reminds me of, which is the have a healthy disregard for the impossible. Uh, because especially coming from an academic background and a research background, like I, I, I learned very by the book, right, about doing things. And, you know, we have very, uh, let's say, low risk tolerance. And then this was this experience was like the complete opposite. And we're like, there's there's no way we're going to do this in two weeks in front of a bunch of people. South by Southwest. Are you kidding me? Like, no, no way. And then we did it, and I'm like, well, I guess, you know, that was 
possible. It seemed impossible, but we could do it. And I like that, that has carried through with me of, uh, having a, a much greater, uh, openness to what is actually possible. And at the very least trying it and not being afraid of that. And I think that's also helped, uh, more broadly with the team of like, we all have that, that mentality of like, everything's impossible till it's not. That's why we have the four minute mile on the. Yeah. So, so for the uh, listeners that aren't on video, uh, behind me is a picture of uh, the famous, uh, the famous mile finished by Roger Bannister, who is the first per- person to run a sub four minute mile. And if anyone's familiar with the story, you know, people were saying that it was physically impossible to break a four minute mile. Like it just couldn't be done. If the humans were not built that way, uh, you would die. Um, and medical professionals were saying that, like, good luck. It's just, it's like, you know, physics says you can't go faster than the speed of light. Well, medical doctors were saying you couldn't go faster than the four minute mile. Roger Bannister breaks the four minute mile at, and then after him, because people said, oh, wow, it is possible. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people have done it since then. So again, it just goes to show you that when you say something's impossible, likely it becomes impossible. But if you have the idea that, you know, I can have a healthy disrespect for the impossible and then push those boundaries, you'll surprise yourself with what's possible. Um, Just like the four minute mile. I love the way you guys put that into your values. And uh, even the the story that you just shared behind that, it's, uh, you know, that that quality, you know, even in the very, very early days in 2017, I think that quality is probably a big part of, you know, where, why, why you guys are where you, where you are today with the company. And, and, uh, that's like such a crew, like that mindset in, in the startup mode is such a crucial mindset, I think for success. Uh, do you guys have any other, uh, really, you know, interesting, fun stories, maybe tied to one of your core values, uh, in addition to that one? I mean, I like your SF day trip. I don't know if we want to go through that. Uh, yeah, so this was, was interesting. So this was raising our Series A round. Um, we were, you know, we were getting, we were cutting close to the amount of runway left in the company. Um, I'd say for the first three rounds, so like for the for the angel round, for the seed round, and then for the A round, we cut pretty close to having enough money left to like stay in business uh, but i think that's pretty par for the course um and we had been introduced to the partner of builders vc by another investor uh that said he wanted to get into the bh space and i was getting to know him and uh it was all through text message and you know some zoom calls and he said look we're we're not going to invest in anybody that uh, I don't meet in person first. I, and again, this was like pre-COVID. So like the notion of doing a completely virtual investment was was obscene. Uh, I also think, by the way, it's the right move, even in a post-COVID world. Like Relationships are, you know, Zoom is a supplement, but not a replacement. And the so anyway, he was like, we're not going to, you, you need to get out here to SF. I, so I said, sure. I sent him a few dates that work none of those worked for him and i forget the exact date but it was a um it the problem was i didn't tell him i ended up flying out on a tuesday and the problem was on wednesday i had a meeting with a client or a prospect health system back in the east coast so i said oh you know what mark his name's mark actually i'm going to be out in san francisco on tuesday uh, if you can meet. And he goes, sure, let's, like, that would be great. So I fly out Tuesday morning. I don't pack an overnight bag at all because I'm going to take the red eye back that night. So I go out Tuesday, land at around lunchtime. I meet him in early afternoon. We spend about three hours together. Then he says, I need to take you for the beer test, which is effectively like go out and get a, you know, a buzz together to see if I could handle my alcohol. Um, and I guess I passed that test. And uh, I head back to the airport, take the red eye back to Philly to connect, to catch a connection up to Scranton, Pennsylvania, to go meet a health system up in Northeast Pennsylvania. Uh, And I made that, made that connection. Adam was on call in case I missed that connection, in case the flight was delayed. He was going to drive up to Northeast Pennsylvania. He didn't have to do that. Uh, A few weeks later, we closed the deal with the investor. Uh, And it was just like, I've never flown coast to coast 
in 12 hours without an overnight bag. It was a, you know, I slept pretty well Wednesday night. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I was going to say, did you tell the customer you did the beer test and the red eye right before you came to pitch them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think I apologize because I was I was a little late because of the flight and and so forth. And I'm sure I had bags under my eyes. And I said, I you know I just came from SF. I don't think I mentioned the beer test, but you know if you're listening <laughs> now, you know. <laughs> well, guys, that's a that's a good note to close on. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, awesome episode, and uh, would have you guys back anytime. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us, Brian.